I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're travelling in search of national anthems with journalist Alex Marshall and his book... Republic or death. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about dirty dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Alex Marshall grew up in the area where London sinks into Essex. He's an award-winning journalist who has been writing about music and politics for over a decade. He started investigating national anthems back in 2008, and that's led to his first book, Republic or Death, Travels in Search of National Anthems, which we're going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome to Little Anthems. Thanks very much for having me. So how did you ever get interested in national anthems in the first place? It was the Beijing Olympics, and I couldn't go to China, and I was thinking about a way I could write about music and the Olympics, and surprisingly, it took me probably a good like four days' thought to suddenly realise that national anthems are the only thing, the only real music that is associated with an Olympics. Mm-hmm. And it's the Olympics is almost the only chance you get to hear some of the more unusual ones. You know, a sort of Japanese swimmer wins gold and you just think, oh, I might actually tune into that medal ceremony and hear what on earth, what song is meant to represent Japan to the world and its people. Mm-hmm. And so I got this idea to just listen to every single one and rank them out of ten. And... At the time, I was living with some flatmates and they found it the most horrific process imaginable because so many of them sound the same. You know, a minute-long military march that sounds a bit like God Save the King or Mm -hmm. God Save the Queen. And I was limited to... I was eventually banned to listen to only three a day. But I wrote this... It took ages. I wrote this piece and it went down better than any piece of journalism I'd written up until that point. Mm -hmm. I mean... I remember a Bangladeshi newspaper ran the front page with Bangladesh wins silver and there was a little asterisk saying turn to page 10 and it sort of said in a Guardian journalist's comedic poll uh, which says all about all about Bangladesh but it made me think I should do more of this and um, in my natural character I procrastinated for many many years but kept on getting reminded about it in different things I was once interviewing a rapper and I had an argument with him about whether um, this guy called Kid Cudi whether 
his song about smoking dope was more important than the Marseillais or not and that made me go home and look up the Marseillais and realise that had a fantastic story and then I went I think the thing that really triggered it is I went to Kosovo because I decided Mm -hmm. I'm going to meet an anthem composer and unsurprisingly the easiest anthem composers to find live in former war zones because they've just got a new song and so I went there and had this incredibly bizarre few days with a man called Mendy Mendici and his seemingly only friend. It was just such a fascinating story. And I realised you could tell the entire history of his country and its mm-hmm. problems through this minute-long song. And I thought, well, if that works, maybe I can go to other places and get more. And it ended up being about four years' research, I suppose, on and off, obviously. I mean, you were a music journalist, yeah. obviously, anyway... What even is a national anthem? Let's talk about that. It seems like a weird question, but it's like they're not... It's, it's not even like writing about classical music or something. No, you know what I mean? It's no. a distinct category of something. It's like... Um, the strange thing is that you don't have... You know, you, it's almost weird that you never had them before nations existed. Yeah. So, you know, nationalism and nation-states emerge in the sort of 18, 17, 1800s. And it's a bit weird. The Roman Empire, there's no reports of the Roman Empire having a song. Mm-hmm. There's no reports of Genghis Khan having a song. You know, the Bible doesn't say, you know, Jesus had a theme tune. So the idea that this one song suddenly emerges to represent several billion, you know, a million people, billion in China's case, and bring them together and sum up their sort of hopes and dreams and unify them and push them towards a common goal is completely absurd. Mm -hmm. And that's almost one of the things I like about them. But I think what created them is they come from the streets. So the first two that really have a success are the Dutch national anthem, which emerges when the country's having a rebellion against the sort of Protestant countries, having a rebellion against the Catholic King of Spain. And they get this song called The William, and it's a really bizarre tune. It actually bows down to the King of Spain. Its first, first climax is with the words, the King of Spain I've always honoured. You know, as if the people who wrote it wanted the rebellion to work, but didn't think it was actually going to come off. But then a few hundred years later, you get the British anthem, God Save the King, which emerges again at a time of national crises, Bonnie Prince Charlie's invading. And this song emerges almost from the streets. People just start singing it to come together. And that's the, that is the song that spreads. It's almost like it's a, anthems are a creation of a force of will, almost, yeah. at that time. Was the William Orange one, like, the first one? I mean, was that actually it's first adopted it's a, by Holland as a national it, anthem? It wasn't adopted officially as a national anthem. It was um, the first one to be officially adopted is effectively Spain's mm-hmm. um, wordless anthem, bizarrely. The Dutch one is the first one that actually, as a nation, functioned as an anthem we know it today. Mm-hmm. I mean, they sung it for a 100 years. Everyone sung it. You know, they were singing it in the streets. They were singing it at war. When they went abroad, people would sing it at them. Um, to welcome them to new countries, to their merchants, to their government officials. And to me, that's sort of, it's those functions which almost do define a national anthem. Mm. That's what we know it today. You play it, you know, it's almost like, um, as someone else has said, it's like filling out a piece of light admin. It's like doing your tax return. You sing it before sporting events. You sing it when the Queen turns up. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're really unlucky and you live in a developing country, you have to sing it every day at school. Uh, unfortunately, we don't hear. But, you know, that's what it's... An anthem's almost is a functional piece of music. And in a way, that takes out the romanticism of it. Yeah. You know, why, you know, I listen to Beyonce records or, you know, Radiohead records. But that's why they're so important. And that's why, more than any other piece of music, you know, people don't fight while singing pieces of music. They don't stand on barricades while singing pieces of music. But they do 
do that with national anthems? You know, that makes them incredibly weird, but it makes them incredibly vital. And I didn't, I, when I started the book, I didn't appreciate that. But now I've mm-hmm. almost become this worrying evangelist for them. And I, I'm trying to make more people evangelise too. Let's talk about God Save the King. Mm. We're going to talk about God Save the Queen later <laughs> on in the interview. Same song, obviously. However, let's talk about the beginning. Yeah. So where does God Save the King come from? So it's 1745 and Bonnie Prince Charlie is invading England to take back the throne for the Catholic Stuarts. And in London at Drury Lane Theatre, the entire cast, God knows why, decide they're going to go off and fight for him. London is meant to be in an utter panic about, about this invasion, despite Bonnie Prince Charlie only having like a few hundred men. And they'd, they'd obviously be terrified of the theatrical brigades. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Here come, watch out, here come the actors. Um, let's flee in terror. So the master of music of this company, Thomas Arne, who wrote Royal Britannia, he apparently decides, despite um, being from a Catholic family himself, he decides he needs a piece of music to sum up this great occasion and this great sacrifice. I'm assuming he thinks they're all going to go and die. And he flicks through his songbooks and he finds this piece that had only been published the year before, called, for the first time, called God Save the King. (laughs) And there's no other record, there's no record of who wrote it, there's no record of who wrote the words or where it came from. But he he just makes an arrangement of it that night. And it does sound completely different to how we know it today. It was originally a galliard, which is a sort of dance from that time. And every third beat, you're meant to do a little jump in the air, very appropriate for the crack team of, um, of, of thefts. But somehow... Despite, you know, all our associations with it today of being boring and slow and monotonous, they sing it that night and it just spreads. You know, it becomes the number one hit of London. They sing it again, they encore it about five times. The next day, all the rival theatres in London are singing it as well because they don't want to lose out. Newspapers start running it. Um, It appears in magazines and it goes all across the country to the point that Bonnie Prince Charlie's men are singing it Mm -hmm. as well. So you get this bizarre two armies fighting each other singing the same song. And you'd have thought it might just last that battle, that war, and then Bonnie Prince Charlie goes and this would disappear and be forgotten about. But it has such a unifying effect that people keep on singing it. They Mm -hmm. start using it as advertising jingles they start when George III the mad king is ill they sing it at him they go out people go outside his house and sing it at him and you know people don't you know people think of God Save the Queen now as this sort of song of royalty and song of the conservative establishment but then it's just a song of everyone Mm -hmm. it's a song of the street and so foreigners come here they think Jesus Christ why is everyone singing this why is it so important we should take this and see if we can use it to build our own countries as well. And so it goes to Russia, it goes to Denmark, it goes to half the German states, it goes to Hawaii, it just goes everywhere. And after that, it's pretty much what says this is going to be, everyone needs a song like this to say we are a country, or we have a king and we love them, and you just can't get rid of them after that. I'm James Ward, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. It's interesting you mentioned the Taliban, and I'm going to jump quite a bit ahead here and talk about that the Islamic State has a national anthem. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the Taliban. It struck me that there must be some, there's almost something un-Islamic about having a national anthem for people that are, you know, that are that extreme. So the idea that, you know, the Islamic State, one of the ways of legitimising themselves is to have a national anthem seemed interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm not too, I, I, so that was a very... (laughs) 
when you when you write a book like this, you clearly go a bit loopy. Because when when I heard that they'd rename themselves the Islamic State for the first time, my first thought wasn't "God, that's horrific." It was literally, "Oh, I wonder if they've got a song." And it turns out there are numerous jihadi music experts. I, I had this horrific day where I watched an awful lot of Islamic State propaganda and realised one song kept on popping up again mm-hmm. and again and again. And I started speaking to these jihadi music academics. Um, they don't specialise just in jihadi music, they do jihadi studies. And they all agree that this is becoming like, from all the communications, this mm-hmm. is the song people turn to. And it's a song which is called My Ummah Dawn Has Appeared, and it says things like, the Islamic State has arisen by the blood of the righteous, the Islamic State has arisen by the jihad of the pious. Um, on one level that's horrific, on another level it's no worse than the Marseillaise. But it's a song which, to their supporters, sort of sums up everything. You know, it's their ideals, it's their motivating force. But you think, okay, that shows the power of music. But it also shows this is a completely, you know, idiotic ideology and an idiotic organisation because it's one of its founding principles is music is un-Islamic and a distraction from studying the Quran. They go around burning instruments. If you're found with a CD in your car, you're pretty much executed. And yet you've got a song and you promote it. They will deny it as music. They mm-hmm. say, oh, it's a chant. But it's got, a, it's got choruses, it's got verses, it's got everything we know in a tune. And, you know, I just, I think because of that, it's incredibly important, both to almost use as a way to undermine the organisation, but also to realise its potency. Because that idea that it's developing a culture is incredibly worrying. We'll just go back to, to God Save the King and... Yeah. I've already forgotten the name of the man who wrote it. You mentioned. Oh no, no, no one wrote it. He just found it. So okay, he revived it. So the guy, but the guy also wrote um, Rule Britannia. Or wrote Rule Britannia. Yeah. Okay, which is you know obviously another popular song. But one of the interesting things about national anthems, as I said, as you've already mentioned, you talk to a number of people who have composed them, and we'll talk about those people as we go. But generally, nobody goes to like a famous composer and says, compose. Nobody went to Mozart and said, do us a national anthem. They're all (laughs) composed by like unknown people or like minor minor names. Why? Well, I think it's partly because they're, you know, these are songs that normally emerge at times of crises, right? The Marseillaise emerges when everyone thinks the French Revolution is Mm. under threat. And there's a composer, an amateur composer, a very idiotic man called Claude Joseph Rouget de Lille, who's who's literally asked to write a song to motivate people in Mm. defence of France. And we'll come back Um, to him in a bit. But there's, um, you know, he's he's a very typical example or the others you've got school teachers who've written them they are complete unknowns and I think it's partly because of that moment you know you have to be there you know the only person who comes close to being there is Haydn who is is Haydn is Haydn who wrote the Deutsch what's now the Deutschland leader the German national anthem but he mm-hmm. wrote the tune for it when Austria was in crisis in the Napoleonic Wars. He's there at the moment. Most people aren't. The other reason I don't think famous composers write them is because everyone knows they're politically manipulated and they're politically contested. I mean, you wouldn't go... Tom York, you wouldn't go to Tom York and say, could you write us a new national anthem for Great Britain, you know, for the United Kingdom, for England? Because he knows the very next day, even if he somehow manages to conjure a song that unites and inspires everyone... It's going to be sung by people he hates. <laughs> you know, it's going to be sung in contexts which no one wants to be involved in. And that's the, that's the interesting thing about anthems, but also that's why no one would go near them. I also actually think it's really hard. I mean, Verdi tried to write Italy's anthem and massively failed at it. And uh, Benjamin Britten tried to write a national anthem for Malaysia and massively failed about it. Because actually writing a minute-long memorable tune is incredibly hard. 
the just because it's on my mind, the composer of Nepal's national anthem, this really nice man called Amber Garung, died last night. And <laughs> that was more of a reaction than I was expecting. But he wrote this incredibly bizarre national anthem, one of the world's most unique. This, um, I'm actually quite upset about it, but there we go. Um, this, it's the only national anthem played on a Casio keyboard. It's joyful, it's fun, and it's been a massive success in Nepal because it sounds like the sort of music you hear in their coming out of taxis or mm-hmm. in their cafes. And when I met him in the country, he, one of the things he said to me was, it's really easy to write difficult music. And it's really, really difficult to write easy music. And I think a lot of composers who, even if composers have tried writing national anthems, they've probably come across that. To write a melody as good as the Marseillaise isn't something you can do just by sitting down, no matter how good a composer you are. And again, we were going to come to Nepal in a bit, but we might as well talk about him yeah. now. That you went there, you met him, you talked to mm. him. Tell us about that. It was actually, that's probably one of the main reasons I wrote the book. So I've just got this such, their the anthem, Nepal's anthem, is so bizarre. And... It actually sounds like the place it's meant to represent, which is such a rare event in national anthems, because so many of them sound like they're trying to sound, you know, to be European. And but in that way, it sounds like they've, you know, they've put the wrong record on us. Yeah, you know, at, at an Olympics, it would be utterly everyone would be confused if it was ever played. Nepal, fortunately, is never going to win an Olympic gold, as far as far as I'm aware. But. The interesting thing is the only reason they have that anthem is due to the product of the Maoist revolution. (laughs) Their first anthem was basically the same as God Save the Queen, but they had to cancel it because the British ambassador complained because his office was next door to the Nepal army band. And every time they played it, he had to stand up. And he stood up about 50 times in a day once and just had enough and went, you've got to get rid of it. Then they had this royalist anthem, which sounded a bit like God Save the Queen, but suitably different that the British ambassador couldn't complain. And then they have this Maoist revolution, and the first thing the Maoists did when they took over village was ban the daily singing of the royal hymn because mm-hmm. they just said, you know, that's a slavish eulogy to a monarch and, you know, how dare you? And so when I went to Nepal, not only did I meet the composer, I met the leader of that revolution, this guy called Babaram Batarai. And I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life. I know there's people listening who, you know, spend their days dealing with dictators, but this guy had led a revolution you know he had issued sort of 40 point list of demands the sort of thing you read out of Stalin and history like that and he'd you know people had killed in his name and he'd become reformed and become part of the political process and he was prime minister at the time and I literally just phoned up his office and said can I come and talk to you about national anthem thinking this is the most ludicrous request imaginable (laughs) but they phoned me back in 15 minutes and went yeah sure it's a big issue for him a big issue and I went to his um, office and apart from a, you know, excruciating like seven hour wait because they turned out to be in the middle of a constitutional crisis, he came in and he spoke for like 20 minutes just in a monologue all about the national anthem and all about what it meant to him and what it meant to the country and how he'd actually have preferred a much stronger national anthem about hammers and sickles and you know something that was far more communist but he recognized that the country did have a song that could touch people because it didn't it didn't sound like a colonial this tune and it was really interesting although nepal's a depressing depressing place yeah i well, wouldn't recommend going to it tell us about the man who wrote it there I say, yeah, sorry, the man who wrote just it. died um he was a guy called amber Garung. he grew up in darjeeling in india um sort of missionary child and going to missionary schools and he fell in love with music when he started sneaking into cinemas to watch fights. 
he just loved people beating each other up at the cinema so he went along but he he largely saw Indian films and obviously the music to Indian films is so romantic and so lush and over the top and exaggerated and he decided to teach himself and basically mm-hmm. copy those and he wrote a big hit about the Nepali diaspora in India and about their you know it's a bit of a woe is me song but it became this it spread really successfully through the Nepalese community and it was seen as such anti so anti-Indian that they banned it in India itself and mm-hmm. banned it from radio so his career was pretty much over in the 1960s but fortunately the Nepalese still used to they used to play gramophones and play his records over the um, over village tannoys so everyone could hear it and that preserved his name and he eventually went back to Nepal ended up writing about a thousand songs so when they came to need a new national anthem actually he was probably the natural choice but they didn't go to him. They first went to the head of the army band and the head of the police band, who both gave such awful compositions that they went, you know, can you please do this? And he did, and he, you know, ended up going into a uh, going to the mountains to try and compose. But it took him weeks and weeks. Everyone thought it'd take him about two days, and he just struggled so much to write a tune that he felt could touch everyone. But yeah, he's a lovely man. But when I met him, he was he already had Parkinson's, and you know, it was a struggle. I had to keep. Well, we spoke for quite a long time, but with breaks like every half hour so he could have time to rest and you know so I knew he was going to die but it's a it's still a sort of shock but then his funeral you know I've seen Nepalese journalism seems a bit different from our journalism and they've had on all the front pages of their newspapers they've had massive photos of him and massive photos of his funeral and which shows the power of his music and the power of his song but weirdly they put um, garlands on you and then they cremate you and he's got so many garlands on him it's a bit like they're cremating the world's biggest bouquet and you can barely see him but you know that shows how many people he's touched so you know it, that's a positive anthem story which is quite a stark contrast to most of the book which is quite you know most anthems have had quite political and quite disastrous histories so it's nice to have a joyful one Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex Marshall. We're talking about his book, Republic or Death, Travels in Search of National Anthems. And let's get back to the Marseillaise then. So yeah. tell us the story of it. You've already mentioned the guy that wrote it. Tell us more about who he was and why so it happened. It's written in 1792. France is about to be invaded by Austria and Prussia, who are going to roll back the French Revolution. And in Strasbourg, there's a man called Claude Joseph Rouget de Lille, and he goes for dinner with the town's mayor, who says, basically, where France is going to be defeated, the troops aren't inspired, they need a piece of music to inspire them. And he says, basically, Claude, you're, a, you know, you're an amateur violinist, go and write me something. And because he's an incredibly proud and egotistical man, he runs back to his house, this is how he tells it, and he writes the Marseillaise in one night of, he drenches the floor in sweats of inspiration. In reality, he stole the music probably from an Italian song about 30 years earlier. He basically stole most of the words because things like the chorus, if you think about it, aux armes citoyennes, uh, robataillons, they're basically slogans, you know, to arms citizens, march on, march on, let's water the fields of impure blood. So and this is basically revolutionary graffiti. It's, it's, it's revolutionary graffiti, which he just somehow manages to bang into a song. And... You know, you could say, well, he doesn't deserve any credit then, but putting those words with that music, you know, it's no different from sampling. You know, it's a fantastic creative achievement. And from there, it spreads all down the armies until it ends up in the revolutionary armies. It ends up in Marseille. And Marseille is a very proud part of France, fed up with being looked down upon by Paris. And so the local um, Jacobins there, the revolutionary people, they decide they're going to march to Paris and defend the revolution themselves. And so 517 men march all the way from Marseille to Paris, singing Marseillaise all the time. Were there any actors? Were there any actors? Fortunately, but actually, I don't know. They were all posh. They were all quite posh people. So again, I can't see them being that threatening. But they apparently marched at night, pulling cannons behind them and with flaming torches, and no one really understood French in those days because they all spoke regional dialects. Mm-hmm. So I think it must have been bloody terrifying hearing this war song going past your, you know, your gîte in the middle of the night. But from when they got to Paris, they helped storm the Tuileries, the, you know, the king's residence, and this massive myth built around them, and the song got named after them. Mm-hmm. And then it became so associated with France. But the sort of 
follow on to that is that Rouget de Lille was such an idiot that he managed to get the Marseilles banned within about eight years by basically having an affair of Napoleon's wife, helping Napoleon's wife commit fraud, writing lots of letters to Napoleon telling him he's doing an awful job, turning France into a foul sewer of sycophancy, which might have been true, but you really don't do that to the most powerful man in Europe. And Napoleon reacted to it by banning the Marseillaise. Um, and he actually, the only time he re-brought it back was when he was about to be defeated. And he had nothing else to turn to, so he just brought back this song. And that shows the song's power. You know, he thought it could motivate Frenchmen in Russia to suddenly rise up and defeat another army when they, you know, they're being killed left, right and centre. But yeah, that's, that's its origins, but it has probably one of the most politically contested histories in, in all of anthems. If you think now, until two years ago, it was hated because it was seen as this colonial tune, um, especially the line, consign pure brevness on its water, the fields of impure blood. It stopped being about Prussians and Austrians, and it started being about Algerians and Tunisians and anyone else France had colonised. And so sort of second-generation, first-generation immigrants to France hated it. And when I was travelling around France talking, I found it really difficult talking to um, any French Algerians about this because they just, you know, it's a song they detested. And um, now following the Paris attacks, it's sort of being rebirthed. You know, I'm really interested to see what happens and whether it stays as a song of unity and of hope and of defence or if it goes back to being a song of um, racism and, you know, uncomfortableness. At this point, we should say something about the, um, the Algerian national The Algerian, yeah, yeah, probably. Um, so that's the, that's the ironic thing about, um, about this. So when I was meeting people, and I did, I did finally get to talk to a French-Algerian, one of, one of France's leading political scholars, and while we are chatting about how awful the Marseillaise was, I decided to show him the Algerian anthem's words. And basically go, and isn't this a lot worse? Because the Algerian anthem literally says, Oh France, your day of reckoning is at hand, and talks about machine guns. It's the only national anthem that talks about machine guns. It says, you know, may, I think it is, may machine guns be our rhythm and gunpowder our melody or something like that. And they believe it was written by an Algerian poet who was locked up by the French in his own blood on the cell wall. I mean, it's the most vicious national anthem there is and he just read he read these words and it was like it was like watching a, a man read a sort of his childhood diary because this sort of ro- rosy look went on his face and he kept on laughing at certain words and then he just went no don't see what the problem is and you know seems seems fine to me i mean you know it's not a song of colonialism and my first instinct was you're nuts you know, how can you not think this is worse? But then, you know, he's right. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you've got to look at the context of these songs at all points. And, you know, Algeria hasn't colonised anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, France has. And when you put in that history, you know, the song, no matter how bloody and how ludicrous and over the top the words are, that's almost irrelevant. And of course, the Marseille was a revolutionary song when yeah. it first began. Yeah, and I think people should go... I think that's, that's what I'd almost like people to realise about these songs, is they were, they were all songs of the street, and they were all songs of popular, you know, of defence. And perhaps, if we appreciate that, we'd appreciate these songs a bit more. You actually oh, attempted to cycle the... Uh, to I cycle attempted to cycle the route, the route yeah. Um, that was actually really... Um, I don't know how... I presume a lot of people listening try and write books, but I initially struggled with, with writing this because I was trying to make it a, a very straightforward history... And, you know, I went to Bosnia and I went to Kosovo and when I, when I wrote it up, it, it just didn't, it didn't come alive for me. 
and I was just searching the Marseillaise and I'd been to the home of the composer, I'd been to Strasbourg, you know, I'd been to Paris to see his grave and it still didn't seem to hang together. And then I finally, I just, I sort of almost the last throw of the dice, I decided to cycle the route and from Marseille to Paris, I had such a god-awful time Probably, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably fit, but never cycle. I realised why the, why the Tour de France is um, pretty difficult after about, after about half an hour. Um, I didn't really check a map, and I went straight over, straight out of Marseille and straight up a mountain. And that was a ludicrous mistake. But that sort of idiocy, combined with the ability to talk to people as I was going on about, you know, what they felt about this song, I suddenly got a narrative, and it gave me the confidence to realise, right, this works. This book needs history and contemporary meaning today. And from there, the whole book actually flowed, really. But I should point out, it's not as idiot abroad as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened, what ended up happening to, to Rouget de Lille? Because as we said, he's already upset <coughs> Napoleon, he's but a... he sort of has an even more yeah. ignominious end, doesn't he? he well, yeah, he goes, um, basically, he, after after upsetting Napoleon, everything goes wrong. He, he goes to prison for debts. He comes out and decides... Having seen that debt collecting is a good job, he tries that, he fails at that. He tries writing pornography, he fails at that. Um, although if you go to his museum, you can still see some of his pornographic works. Um, he tries to kill himself, he fails at that. Um, his life is, is basically um, a really bad example for others. And when he finally dies, there's about five people go to his funeral. And then in the suburbs of Paris and... His body is then moved around several times and they finally, and I think pretty much lost, and France finally decides they actually need him in World War I and they dig up his body and decide they're going to move it to, um, to Invalide, which is the home of the French military. Mm-hmm. And they probably pick out the wrong body because the grave is incredibly small. So it's likely, most people think it's, you know, maybe his bastard child, which they're actually drigging along. And even worse, they then go and stick him next to Napoleon, the person who hates him. So his life is really, even in death, he doesn't get a break. I feel really sorry for him, but he, I, he's almost my hero because of that. I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about the Star Spangled Banner, the the national anthem of the United States, which actually didn't become the national anthem of the United States until relatively recently, but we'll talk about that in a minute before... I want to talk about a certain singing contest yeah. that happens. Um, as, I, as I was just saying, when I, when I initially started this book, I thought I needed, and I was only just researching it, and I didn't realise how powerful these stories are and how connected with politics they are. Um, I mean, we're probably going to touch something, but, you know, these songs be South Africa's is integral to the end of apartheid. You know, Japan's is integral of that country's bizarre history of nationalism. And by, so I decided I needed almost to throw myself in the story, to bring these alive. And so I decided to enter a singing contest in Nashville because I thought no anthem is sung more than this. And what's, what a better opportunity to understand the anthem than to sing it myself. So I got a baseball team to agree. The only one who would agree for me to do this was the Nashville Sounds, all credit to them. And I didn't really think about it because I, I can sing a bit until I literally stepped onto this 
podium you know, and listen to all the people before me and realise that Nashville is the home of country music. And pretty much everyone else auditioning that day had a record deal, was about to become, a, you know, the next Taylor Swift or the next Dolly Parton, and they could really sing. And it made, I almost had a, had a, I was jet-lagged, and I almost had a nervous breakdown as this six-year-old girl in front of me just belted it out, the greatest Star Spangled Banner I'd ever heard. And... I tried, I had two instructions. I had singing lessons before I went and I had two instructions. Start as low as possible because it's an octave and a half range. That's the, you know, it's the biggest national anthem and if you start too high, you'll never hit the top notes. And start quickly because it's meant to slow down and get majestic and imperial as it goes on. And I was so focused on that starting, starting as low as possible that I completely forgot what speed I was going at. And I basically sounded like I had a speech impediment. I was dragging out each word so slowly. It was like, you know, the crowd must have thought I'd just forgotten them and was trying to remember by just holding on to each one. And it was... It was the most excruciating thing I've ever been. I got all, you know, all credit to anyone who sings this because I found it abysmal. I had to turn around and try and... I, I realised the only way... Um, if you could see my face now, you'd realise how embarrassed I am. But um, I turned around and I, I tried to use the crowd to sort of cover my the disaster it was. I pumped my fist at them. I waved at them to get up. You know, I even I stuck the microphone at them going, you know, sing with me. And none of it really worked. One woman seemed to think I wasn't mocking the United States. And so I just focused. She joined in and she she actually did wave. And I just looked at her and looked at her and looked at her until I got to the end. And I really, I just don't recommend anybody ever does. It made it sound like Borat. and And it really wasn't Borat. It was a genuine attempt to understand this song and I think what I understood is it's impossible to sing and that's why in America it's become a singing contest. In America the anthem isn't so much, it doesn't mean so much to many people apart from an opportunity to either see someone like Beyonce do something incredible or someone like me utterly make a fool of themselves and to give them a cheap laugh and at least I brought joy to a few American teenagers who thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But yeah. But I mean, it does mean a lot to them, and they do sing it everywhere, unlike us. As you know, you've met her, my partner yeah. is American, and of course, immediately after reading this book, I asked her about the American national anthem. Of course, she knew all the words. Yeah. You know, I obviously had, no, not even the first verse. I'll <laughs> say the Queen. They, they care a lot more about it. They will. Yeah, I, I'm sort of being so flippant. I think the people I found who cared about it most were, you know, those who are more closer to being recent immigrants to the country. I mean. Some bizarre fact is a lot of anthem composers have to live in the States. You know, two people who... Nigeria's was a collective effort, and two people who composed Nigeria's live in the States. Guy who composed Barbados's lives in the States. Yeah, he's actually American. Um, guy who composed St. Kitts. And, you know, I spoke to some of them, and they actually said the, the Star Spangled Banner meant more to them than the anthems they'd written. And it's because... Despite it being quite a hackneyed song, it has lines in it like the land of the free and the home of the brave is actually a perfect tagline for a country. You know, mm. it can attract it attracts immigrants. It sums up the opportunity and, you know, every other cliche you can think of the American dream. And, you know, that's the power of the song. America is also a fiercely patriotic country. It's not the most patriotic country I went to by a long way. You know, developing countries, Paraguay, Kazakhstan, you know, those are ones which where patriotism is really, you know, sort of life or death. 
but it still is intensely personal. But I think it means most to those who, in America, the recent immigrants and also anyone in the armed forces for obvious reasons. But as I mentioned, it's, it's a relatively recent that it's been the National yeah, Anthem. So let's talk about the story of that song, because it was written a long time before. Yeah, it's written a long time before. And again, as everything seemed, in National Anthem seems to be connected back to Britain, it's during what's known as the War of 1812, where we decide we've had enough of America being a young upstart and, you know, burning towns in Canada and things. And there's one battle. We've just burnt down Washington and we're deciding to bomb the living daylights out of Baltimore. We want Baltimore to be obliterated from the face of the planet. And due to various circumstances, a lawyer called Francis Scott Key is trapped on a British boat and is made to watch the bombing. And inspired, he writes, you know, when he watches it and he watches it, and in the morning he assumes his country is lost. And in the morning he looks up and the flag, as you know, the song is still there. And that's the moment that inspires him to write what is it? It's it's the ultimate song of relief. It isn't today, it's become this song of bellicose, you know, almost racism. But I think most Americans think the bombs that are bursting in air are theirs, not the British. But for him, it's a song of relief and joy that his, you know, America has survived. And that's the great thing about it. But then, you know, it does take off. But in America, because it's quite disparate communities at that time, and it's still very focused on the States, there become lots and lots of different competing anthems. Even Yankee Doodle becomes this massive patriotic song, despite having a basically a nursery rhyme tune. And there doesn't really go a clamour for the Star Spangled Banner until almost the 20th century. And then people realise it's actually sung to a British drinking song and Prohibition comes along. And so all the Prohibition advocates go, how dare a British drinking song become our national anthem? And it takes this massive campaign until it's adopted. And, you know, people, most people think national anthems are immutable and they're, you know, they are, they're almost as old as the land itself. Um, but that's a prime example that they're actually quite recent. They can be changed really easily. And so if you hate your own national anthem, just campaign and get rid of it. I want to talk about the national anthem of the um, small alpine principality of Liechtenstein. <laughs> Tell us about theirs. So, yeah, I went to, um, partly because I didn't want to. So Liechtenstein, if you ever hear their national anthem, you'd notice it's incredibly familiar if you're British because it is God Save... It's the only anthem country that still uses God Save the Queen. So all of those countries that had it through history, all of them realised that perhaps they could knock out their own tune that might mean something more to the people, or at least get Mm -hmm. their own composer to write something. Liechtenstein, for whatever reason, decided they were actually quite happy with God Save the Queen's music, and they instead just adopted their own words to it, which are all about their first... Um, the Prince and so they still sing it today and I went there and it's very discombobulating you know I went to their National Day which is this massive party where the entire 30,000 people basically get drunk in the Prince's premises he actually puts on free beer and um, finger food and um, you know he's, he's even rumoured to go and dance with his wife in the town but anyway they so they've got this anthem and surprisingly they're quite happy with it I mean I went around asking people why you would still have this you know, surely this is meaningless. You know, you've just got, you're nothing but a quiz answer. You know, mm-hmm. who shares the same anthem as the Queen? But they actually liked it because they're never going to win anything at the Olympics. They're never going to win anything at football. And so they actually get to hear their national anthem quite a lot. And 
I was I was genuinely disappointed. But then, as I went to their leading composer and asked him, like, why, you know, haven't you been tempted to write something? And he said, well, well, yes. But then I remembered that Beethoven said, God Save the King was the most, you know, was one of the greatest melodies ever written. And if he thought that, I've got to write something that Beethoven would like. And I'm never going to achieve that in my life. So he might as well stick with yours. And I suppose that shows the power of tradition more than mm. anything else. And also a reminder that Beethoven was deaf. Deaf, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, very, a, very good, a very good reminder. Perfect reminder, yes. I don't really care about Liechtenstein. It only makes this to get us onto the subject of God Save the Queen. So let's talk about that yeah. for the remainder of this part. Why is it so awful? Why is it so awful? Um... God, it's, it's musically, it's very... I think partly it's repetition. You, I mean, you always grow up with what you... Both of us grew up hearing that. How many thousands of times must we have heard God Save the King? Especially the Queen. Especially as it's become sort of in Hollywood. You know, they're going to... They're, you know, like when Friends or Parks and Recreation or any sitcom you like, when they do those awful episodes when they come to England, suddenly they're playing God Save the Queen because it's shorthand for the rest of the world that this is what this country is. So you can't escape it. And I think you're... There's over-familiarity means you, you hate it, but it's slow, it's laborious, it says nothing about the country, it just says, we've got a queen, we wish she lives a long time. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about the people, and that's why it was a success when it was written. I mean, because back in the 1700s, the only thing, you know, England, Ireland and Scotland could agree on was they wanted the monarch to reign and that they were very religious. But today that's completely irrelevant to our lives. Mm-hmm. And so when we sing it, we just think, what the hell are we singing this for? I mean, that's why people, you know, rugby matches, they spontaneously sing Jerusalem instead. Because, actually, in a way, I can't understand why they do sing it, because that's a weird song about, you know, someone's... Hippie mystic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> hippie mystic's vision of when Jesus might have created, a, a gre- you know, roamed across England's green and pleasant land, you know, someone who took far too many drugs and had very confused relationships with women. But, you know, it's a better song. And that's what the most successful national anthems are. The ones in South America, the Marseillaise, mm. all of them are quick and exciting. And, you know, that's what we need. Jerusalem has momentum. Well, I've often, I've often wondered, you know, when people talk about, oh, let's have Land of Hope and Glory, let's have Jerusalem, rather than God Save the Queen. And I often think, oh, I can't really be, can't really be bothered than that. But it's only when you investigate other countries' national anthems that do talk about the country in terms of its, you know, its hills or its beautiful women or whatever, and some of them <laughs> do, that you think, yeah, you know, God Save the Queen doesn't say anything about the country at all. I mean, the only one, there's only, the only other one I've come across that really doesn't talk about the country is Slovenia's which literally says to all folk everywhere, basically, be happy. And that's got incredibly convoluted historical reasons why it doesn't. It was, you know, it was a folk tune. It was a drinking song from, like, the early days of Slovenian consciousness. And it is a proper drinking song. I mean, it literally, it's called a toast. The um, verses are shaped like a wine glass. It's a song for getting drunk to. And just as the fall of communism was happening, a rock band, cover, punk band, covered this made it incredibly popular in Slovenia. And so when the fall of communism happens, it's almost forced as the country's national anthem. And the politicians suddenly think, hang on, this is the most bellicose, drunken national song imaginable. We can't have this as our song. And so they pick the soul, they pick one verse, and it's the only non-bellicose one, where the singer is suddenly, the writer is so pissed that he's, he's now saying, everybody, I love you all. It's like a drunk at the end of the night. So he's forgotten he's Slovenian. That's the only other national anthem that doesn't talk about a country. 
So why we have this, I just, I just think, oh, God, it's, it's just change it, you know, change all the words. It's not hard. You can even keep the tune. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Alex Marshall and we're talking about his book Republic or Death, Travels in Search of National Anthems. And Alex, for the last part of the show I want to look at, first of all, some of the more contentious ones and then we'll look at perhaps some of the more fun ones to end with. You mentioned Japan already, and yeah. why is the Japanese national anthem so controversial? Because um, they idiotically didn't change it after World War Two. I mean, the Germans changed theirs um, because they realised the world didn't understand, wouldn't understand that Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, wasn't about Nazi imperialism and was actually about unifying the German states. The Italians got rid of their anthem, or that helped that they also abolished their monarchy. Uh, but Japan stuck with their song, which is, is worth listening to because it's a it's one of the few sort of sad national anthems. Israel's Hatikva is in a minor key as well, but this is sort of elegiac and funereal, and it shouldn't really be controversial. And its lyrics are really simple. They literally just say, "May your reign last one thousand, no, ten thousand generations until the stones turn into boulders, lush with moss," and. You know, as someone who I, I met there said to me that the the only people who had problems with that are Japanese geologists because stones turning into boulders really isn't how things work. But instead, it's been this 70-year row because after World War II, teachers, they formed a union and they said, we are not singing this song. We are not even standing for this song because it led to Japanese children going to war. It was one of the main ways of causing emperor worship. And so they point-blankly refused. And ever since, the, the sort of Japanese politicians accepted that for about 40 years. And then they started passing law after law, trying to force people to sing. And it's led to this bizarre standoff between the teachers and the government. And on one level, it's incredibly tragic. I mean, a man's killed himself. Teachers have lost their jobs. They've had death threats. Um, their lives have been made literally untenable in some cases. And it's incredibly sad. But on another level, it's got that sort of absurdity to it that underlies all national anthems. On one on one point, you just think, how can you take this so seriously? It's a 55-second song. You know, just don't stand for it or, you know, or just let them not stand for it. By the time anyone's noticed the teacher isn't standing, the song's finished. Um, but there's also some really bizarre bits in the, sto- in the story's history. I mean, the first law that was passed said... You know, this song must be played at all ceremonies, all mm-hmm. school ceremonies. And so head teachers complied with it by listening to the anthem on headphones on their own Walkman. So, you know, people just went, you know, yes, the box has been ticked, the anthem has been played. The fact no one heard it is, you know, another matter. But it's really, it's utterly serious and bizarrely shocking. I mean, 
most countries I went to, if I said, can I ask you, you know, just a man on the street, can I ask you about your national anthem? They would initially look a bit confused. I mean, it's not something you normally say to someone. But in Japan, everyone knew instantly and most of them preferred not to talk they would try and change the subjects they would you know i'd say what do you think of it and they wouldn't give me a view they would just give me a long rambling history instead in an effort to hope i'd get bored and walk away um you know i was shouted at by some of you know obviously some people had very strong views and you know some of japan's leading right-wing politicians basically denounced me in front of in front of the japanese press for having the temerity to question them and their authoritarianism but it's a yeah an incredibly strange country and an incredibly strange story but that isn't by far the you know that's the most controversial anthem but pretty much any anthem you can name has at some point been sung controversially even just think of ukraine and russia at the mm-hmm. moment i mean after eurovision the ukrainian woman who won that with actually a very i think beautiful song quite obviously about russia and crimea the first thing she did when she got back to ukraine was sing the national anthem mm-hmm. when they were forming barricades in maidan square they were singing the national anthem on the hour every hour ukraine's not dead yet a very good title for that conflict but any conflict you go to anthems are right there because it's what you you know, what else have you got? After Japan, then, let's talk about a present-day dictatorship. Um, so, you went to Kazakhstan. Yeah. Let's talk about who wrote Kazakhstan's national anthem. The delightful, permatanned, um, slightly diminutive Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, who is Kazakhstan's glorious, eternal... Um, forevermore ruler of the people's hearts and he also unsurprisingly well actually no not quite surprisingly for a dictator he is also a bit of a musician and he plays the dombra which is kazakh's national instrument and apparently he's always been a songwriter but when kazakhstan became independent he basically has been trying to force his way into every symbol in the country, and he wrote its national anthem. And if you go to his capital city, Astana, which he actually um, only created in 1997, is full of some of the weirdest structures you'll ever come across, all allegedly designed by him. There's things like the, the world's biggest tent, there's one of the world's biggest mosques, despite Kazakhstan only having about, in this place, only having about 20 Muslims in which to fill it. Um, and in the middle, there's this gold, there's a massive tower, which is meant to be... The, it's meant to be the egg of peace in the tree of hope or something. And right at the top is Nazarbayev's golden handprint. And Kazakhs literally unbelievably cue to put their hands in this and take photos of babies putting their hands in it. And they're meant to turn and face Nazarbayev's house and make a wish. And if they are deemed important enough, the national anthem plays at ear-splitting volume. It's basically like the most extreme example of cult of personality I've ever come across and he's incredibly proud of this and um, the worst thing was I went there and I found it incredibly uncomfortable I mean Nazarbayev is not a especially at the fall of communism he made an awful lot of money he's got you know more oil stains on him than you can ask it is a dictatorship there is no legitimate opposition anyone who does stand out is pretty much closed down immediately so it's not pleasant, but, you know, I could even ask, Lee, I asked leading opposition figures about his anthem. And they'll go, yeah, he did, he's actually, he's done a good job. He's done a good job. It's actually quite a good tune. It's, um, yeah, I quite like it. And the words, you know, he's, he's, he's got right to the, he understands the Kazakh people. You know, I don't agree with his, you know, social policies, but he really does understand the Kazakh people. And that made it incredibly uncomfortable for me. He's a lone, a lone voice in the world, in world leaders. You know, Mao didn't write his national anthem, Stalin didn't write his, 
you know, there's plenty of people who you'd have thought would have, you know, none of the North Koreans wrote theirs. Uh, so he's, you know, he's, he's a bold man. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Most national anthems have words, obviously, yeah. because, you know, that's what they want people belting out. But there are a few that don't. And a lot of them don't for like quite obvious political reasons. And you've already mentioned you went to Kosovo yeah, earlier on in the interview. Well, yeah. But yeah, I wanted to talk about the Bosnian one because that's a an interesting story about the man who composed that one. Yeah, basically Bosnia, I went to meet the composer of theirs, not knowing the story in advance. And it turned out they had a contest for a new national anthem after the war. And he decided to enter purely because he found himself on holiday and short of money. And he was a Serb and he didn't want, he didn't really believe in Bosnia. So he entered a deliberately sad tune in the hope of coming second or third, you know, well composed tune, but deliberately rubbish to come second or third, pocket the money and go away quietly. And instead he won. And as soon as he won, his life was a disaster. The Serbs hated him because he was a collaborator. The Bosnians hated him because he was a Serb. The Croats hated him because he was a Serb. How dare a Serb give us our national symbol? Um, his wife left him. He could no longer get any work. He wasn't even paid. And everything was... Then it turned out he plagiarised the song from the film National Lampoon's Animal House. Um, and it is, if you ever hear it, it's exactly the same. Why Bosnia hasn't dropped this after learning that, I'll never know. But he sort of almost threw his lot in with this song because he then decided to write the words for it. You know, if he's not, if he's not got anything else to live for, why not? But when I first met him, he was probably one of the most memorable characters I met for the book because he, he was just so dejected. I mean, I met him in the height of summer and he was wearing, like, a big body warmer and he had a hat pulled down over his face. You know, he's trying to almost hide in himself. And I really wanted to say, if you're trying to hide from the world, don't look like you're in a blizzard in the middle of summer. You know, you're the most conspicuous person here. Um, but I went and met him a second three, because it had been three years. He's one of the first trips I did, and I thought three years, everything could have changed. Mm -hmm. And I went back to Bosnia to try and track him down, because um, he initially just didn't reply to any communications. And I assumed I'd find out he'd killed himself. And instead, he, we met in exactly the same place, and he walked in, all wearing orange with this long flowing hair, and he looked like a leader of a cult. And it was this fantastic transformation. And I sort of asked him what happened, and he just told me he'd had a heart attack. <laughs> and it made him think completely differently about life. And he almost just said, well, you know, he tried to completely rewrite history in front of me and said he'd actually done it to inspire Bosnia, and he wanted Bosnia to survive and... You know, he hoped it would inspire this glorious future. But, you know, I thought if, if, he even, if he has to live in a lie like that, that's good for him. I hope it does achieve what he wants. And I did meet some people who said they do feel that way. But the worst thing about Bosnia's anthem, if you go to a sports event, all the Bosniaks, the people who actually believe in the country, because it's still wordless, they sing other words over the top. They sing words from the Bosnian War, the anthem there. And it's the biggest cacophony I've ever heard in the sport. They're two tunes. They don't... It's one song to a tune to another. They don't go together at all. And you get this war in football stadiums between the PA announcer who just keeps on turning up the volume on the anthem to try and drown out the singers and the singers getting louder. And for... You know, the only good thing about it is for the Bosnian football team, it makes home games almost a, an easy win because opposing teams just think, you know, we haven't even started playing and we, we are literally in hell. Well, we're quickly running out of time. There's a great section in the book. I mentioned that, you know, 
we've said earlier that a lot of a lot of national anthems are terrible and really really boring, but almost all of South America has much more fun and interesting national anthems. So that's a great bit of book, but we'll skip over that. I want you to finish oh. off telling us about <laughs> the competition to write the Swiss national anthem. Okay, um, I'd firstly say everyone read the book and learn about South America's national anthems because they are unbelievably fun and exciting in ways that no other anthem is and the olympics is in brazil just listen to it but so while i was writing it switzerland decided it needed new words in a similar way to god save the king you know we're saying as we were saying earlier god save the queen means nothing to us their anthem is all is a biblical weather forecast it says when the hills are bright with splendor pray free swiss pray i mean it's complete to any anyone in Switzerland today it's just we're not religious who cares and so they decided they needed new words and for some idiotic reason I thought I'm the person to give it to them you know I know more about national anthems than pretty much anyone who's written one of these before so I'm going to give it a go and what I found out is it's actually bloody hard because to come up with anything original to say about a country's mountains or its hills I mean that's why so many national anthems are are, are in cliches because how can you describe an anthem uh, you know a, a mountainside in a way that sounds distinct I mean Alden once tried to, was asked to write an anthem for peace for the UN and he actually comes up with poetry for it but it's so convoluted no one would ever sing it you know it's that's but to, you know you, you need an anthem needs to be simple and that's why it goes to cliches but when I tried I ended up I gave up on the mountains and the lakes because I was doing so badly at that I tried to write an anthem based on the life of William Tell which was even worse I had dodgy lines about go and grab your crossbows, people of Switzerland. Um, I travelled Switzerland to try and get inspiration. That really didn't help. And I ended up, I, I would literally, one day I was moaning to a friend. I just went, look, there is no, the big promise Switzerland is the best anthems have blood and guts. And Swiss history has no blood and guts. And it was at that moment I suddenly realised I could write something. And I wrote I think my lines I came up with was something like, you have your wars, you have your blood, meaning everyone else. But we are the Swiss. We are the Swiss. We have chocolate. We have chocolate, pretty much. And, um, yeah, everyone said you should really just write this about chocolate and cuckoo clocks. And, um, unfortunately, I don't think that would have appealed. And so I came up with this fantastic, what I thought was quite a fantastic song in French, submitted it, and um, very quickly got a rejection letter. But the best thing about the rejection letter, and I still think I'm still confused by this today, the actual winner was a, the guy who ended up winning was a, um, a member of the Swiss Health Board. And they actually, I should actually just say the reason they were doing this because they wanted a multicultural anthem. But anyway, the letter I got said, we're really sorry about your esteemed contribution. Um, and although it's not right for us, it may be good for another context. And I remember, I just read this in hysterics because what I need, I, another country might be interested in my, my brilliant We Are The Swiss national anthem. But maybe they're right. I might try, you know, the next time if Belgium splits up, I might try rewriting it to We Are The Walloons or We Are The Flemish or whatever, whatever the, the right term is and see if they're interested. You know, why, why not? But really, I think the lesson I learned from that is if you think your national anthem is bad, try writing one yourself because I can guarantee you probably won't be able to make it any better. That's a great point for us to finish. <laughs> I've been talking to Alex Marshall. We've been talking <laughs> about his book, Republic or Death, Travels in Search of National Anthems, which has just recently come out in paperback from Windmill Books. Alex, thanks so much for Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. 
You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.